Okay, hey, good morning, good morning. I didn't know I was walking into uh, people who didn't like baseball players, okay? So, hey, that is, that is a part of my life. It used to be normal. Um, I'm Brett. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be talking about growing, using God's Word to grow. Uh, has anybody ever heard the phrase, uh, boys who can shave? This, this phrase has been around for a while, and it and it kind of encompasses this reality that uh, there is now this other stage of the transition to adulthood for, for males. It used to be kind of boys, and then you're a man, and now there's this interim thing called adolescence. Adolescence starts someplace between when you're like a teenager, and now it's got, it extends longer and longer to sometimes people even in their 30s still live like teenagers, right? Traditionally, uh, there were five milestones for this transition to adulthood. You would finish school. You would leave home. You'd become financially independent. You'd get married, and you'd have a child, and those would be very normative things that happen between the ages of like 19 to 20, mid-20s. But we know that's different, right? The world's shifted, and, and a lot of things have shifted. People call this, uh, psychologists call this clinically, clinically, which is failure to launch, or FTL, right? We, if you've seen that movie, there's like a thing, like the psychology, or psychology today. Uh, it's a cultural phenomenon, right, where we don't finish school and grown children uh, live at home, uh, struggle to pursue a career, uh, and then marriage, just even culturally, like happens later and later, more into, a, into your 30s. Uh, there's a, here's, uh, I was reading this online, Psychology Today. Here's kind of a profile of, a, a, of an FTL um, Young man. So it reads like this. It says he's 23 years old. He's dropped out of college after a semester. He's now living at home. He's totally dependent on his parents financially, as well on services such as laundry. He isolates in his room. He often sleeps during the day. Unemployment has a detrimental effect on young adult psycho psychological well-being. That coupled with parental financial support may reduce their resources for self efficacy and the transition to adulthood gets lengthy and precarious right so this is an interesting picture and maybe you know somebody and I'm not like necessarily throwing stones you you probably should take a little bit more efficacy of your life but you have a full-grown man who lives like a teenager or a child right it's a pretty vivid picture and there's a, a really strong parallel between that and Christianity or the kingdom of God, if you think about it. Stuck somewhere, many, many people, not just young men, stuck somewhere between infancy or young adulthood in Christ and being a mature adult. And a lot of it comes down to what Bo was sharing. Have you ever taken your faith and made it your own? Have you made those decisions? Or are you dependent on those who are around you? Are you still slave to many sins? The same habits for many, many years. 
When you are confronted by the word or a friend, do you justify versus repent? Is there self-focus about who you want to be, uh, what you want to establish? Have you ever trained yourself for godliness? Do you need the word spoon-fed to you? Do you hear the word and actually kind of push against because you've been so indoctrinated in uh, the ideologies of the world? That is what a spiritual adolescent looks like, right? The irony is some spiritual adolescents are some of the most successful people you will ever meet. They throw their energy and they make their life's work um, have nothing to do with the kingdom of God, nothing to do with spiritually growing up, and uh, to their own detriment, right? They are, spiritually speaking, the 29-year-old playing Call of Duty in their basement with Cheeto dust on the controller, <laughs> sleep until noon, waking up just in time to door dash. Like, spiritually speaking, that's who these people are. It's not a new problem either. You can see it in your Bible, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 through 14. It reads, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. In this passage, you're a child if the doctrines outside of the Bible are bigger convictions than the one inside. That you have to be grounded again and again in the basics of Christianity. Because there are doctrines in here that offend you. Because you've been indoctrinated from the outside. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3 is similar. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh and as infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, uh, you are not ready, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. Right, Both of these passages point towards full-grown adults, but babies, infants, in the things of God because of intolerance to the deeper things of Scripture, unfamiliarity with the deep things of Scripture. Or on the inverse, uh, you're just indoctrinated with the things of the world, and so you don't like what God has to say. Both of these uh, examples... People are too immature to be able to palate Scripture. They haven't left the early development years. They haven't. They need their meals spoon-fed. They're spiritually shallow, dependent, and uh, that's not good. Who wants to be that? Nobody. Nobody. Right. So we need to grow up. We need to grow up. We're going to camp out. I'm going to pull my points from Romans 12, 1 through two. This is. Uh, a Waterloo scripture. If you're familiar with it, you should be. But let's like look at it deeply. One through two. It reads like this. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you've read Romans, you know this is kind of a turning point in the book. The first 11 chapters, he's been establishing the depths and the, the, the breadth and the beauty of uh, what had to be justified by faith. And so it's dense and theological, and then it's time to turn the corner. And what he teaches us is what real worship looks like. Now, that doesn't say like, you know, other acts, singing, praise, thanksgiving, aren't. But, it, but at its foremost foundation, it is a person offering themselves to God, right? And the, do you see the imagery? The, the imagery is uh, the ceremonial sacrifice system of the Old Testament where you would go and honor God by giving up unblemished bulls and lambs and calves and drinks and birds, but now you show your worship to God by once you understand the gospel, you offer your life. If you're uh, familiar with Jesus' parables, Matthew 13, 44 through 46, is very, uh, talks about the same thing, but with a cool image. It says, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great valley, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Uh, the, the image is powerful because you can put yourself in that same situation. It would be insanity to run into buried treasure or to be someone who dealt with jewels all the time and found one of great value and go, well, it's kind of expensive. I don't know if I can pull the pieces together, right? It's a powerful image because it's so crystal clear and simple. If you land upon something that valuable, you give it all away to get the thing. You offer your whole life as, 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 as an offering, as a, an act of worship, right? It's powerful. You sell it all. Knowing you just got the deal of a lifetime, and that's what salvation is, the, and everything that comes with it, the kingdom of God, the, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, uh, the promises of life everlasting, the forgiveness of sins, those are all this treasure that we have stumbled upon. By the grace of God, we see it, and uh, it just makes sense to sell out for it, to offer yourself for it. But some of us like to do this cost-benefit analysis, right? Like, well, is this really worth it? Of course it's worth it, right? If God is real, if this thing is true, your life is worth putting into the hands of God for him to care for, for him to lead. But this is why some of us stagnate in our growth, like right here. You know, before any instruction, 
do this, do this, handle it this way. Before any instruction in this, this kind of masterpiece of Romans, he says you have to offer yourself. Like this is where it starts, right? And I think a lot of us would like to go, well, maybe I can slowly improve and I'll, and I'll read and I'll attend and I'll... But, but really, this is the elephant in the room that God wants your whole life. And if you want the power of God in your life, uh, you can't do these half measures, you know. Jesus didn't do a half measure. You know, he gave his, his whole life, faced the wrath of God so that we could have his righteousness. I mean, it's an intense story. We're dealing with intense things. It's not, it's not a half measure. He wants the whole thing. Uh, and so you might look at your life and wonder, hey, why am I struggling to grow? Why do I feel powerless to some things and I think what you're going to find is it it always leads back to here yeah have you offered yourself and as you grow in, in God you're going to find uh, man there's going to be seasons where you have new things to offer too so, may, so maybe the initial offering of yourself isn't it but <laughs> there will be seasons where you're like man I need to go back I need, to, I, I need to go back with a sincere heart and offer my life up. John 12, 24 through 25 says, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. And anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Right? Reproduction. The fruit, the fruits of the Spirit, the power of God through your life into others happens after the death, after the living sacrifice moment happens, right? Uh, we were talking about, they were announcing Men's Encounter, and last year I was at Men's Encounter, and uh, if you go, there's, there's some amazingly wild stories, but I was listening, and multiple times... Uh, men were getting up and they were testifying about like hardcore drug addiction that they were that they were in before Christ. Like, and I, I've never been hardcore drug addicted, but like you've seen TV, you might have had friends or relatives, and you know that is like a like a chokehold on somebody's life. You expect. Like what? One percent of people to get out of that chokehold, and yet these men are testifying. And you know what they said? It was like the same thing. They just had to offer themselves to God, and offer not just this thing to God, themselves to God. And they found, wow, places where I had no power, God started to give me power. Right. It's, it's amazing. It was amazing. Those are some amazing stories. And you've heard them. And you know they're true. You know they're true. Because you've probably met these individuals. And that same power is accessible to us. But you've got to go to the altar. You've got you to offer it up. Okay, the second 
a little insight from our passage is do not conform to the pattern of this world. Okay? We were just at, as uh, Jonathan was sharing, we were just at this pastor summit. And like, uh, there's probably four or five speakers or panels that were kind of drawing upon the same research from a, a researcher called John, uh, George Barna. And it was about uh, the, the, the worldview of both Americans, pastors, and Christians. And it's really uh, recent data. So it's like 2022-2023 data. And it was pretty powerful. So here's a couple, here's a couple oogie-boogies. Number 4% of Americans have a biblical worldview. 4%, that's wild. 14% of American evangelicals have a biblical worldview. And the research actually says, like, it, it uses COVID as kind of a milestone. And, like, prior to COVID, that, was, that number was at 21%. So, so what, what it implies is people who go to evangelical churches, churches that believe in personal conversion and you don't, earn your salvation, uh, that they're the, uh, we, we lost a good chunk of people who believe in just the authority of Scripture. When they do this research, I was looking into it because I was like, is it, do, they, do they expect these wild, you'd believe these wildly superfluous things? No, it's like, uh, here, I looked it up. It was, uh, do you believe in absolute moral truth? Do you believe that Satan is a, a real being and not symbolic. Do you believe a person cannot earn their way to heaven? Do you believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth? <laughs> and only 14% of evangelicals believe that. I want to read you a short section from this, this research because it, it tells of the shift that has happened post-COVID, just even in the last, like, three or four years. It says, over the last few decades, the theological consensus among evangelicals has dramatically eroded. Based on a study of 20 core attributes tested in the American worldview inventory, there are only two beliefs or behaviors for at least four out of five evangelical attenders conformed to the biblical view. So out of the there's only two. So 80% believe God created the universe. That's not bad. 79% hold an orthodox biblical view of God. The survey identified a number of biblical perspectives that fail to resonate with most of the adults who attend evangelical churches. For instance, less than one out of three reject the claim that determining moral truth is up to each individual. And that there's no moral absolutes. Another shocking revelation is that only four out of ten attenders of evangelical churches contend that human life is sacred. That fits with the finding that barely half of evangelicals believe that having an abortion for any reason other than protecting the life of the mother or child is morally unacceptable. Other biblical perspectives rejected by most evangelicals include the view that the best indicator for successful life is consistent obedience to God, and the world history is God's story and consistently moving towards the fulfillment of his plan for humanity. I mean, it's, anyways, and then he gives like a little reflection at the end. I'll just skip to that part. He says, 
These statistics are a direct reflection of the theological perspectives of the teachers influencing American Christians. There's a striking parallel between the synchronistic views of pastors and those embraced by congregants. The world has clearly left its mark on the American church. We desperately need a new era in which Bible-believing portion of the body of Christ impresses the world through its commitment to godly truths and morals. It's a striking illustration, to me at least, of this conforming to the world is now the norm, right? More and more so, right? The scriptures say, do not conform to the pattern of this world, and yet, what do we see? It's like, man, radically conforming to the beliefs of uh, the media and our friends and, uh, you know, professors or whatever. I don't know. It's wild. It is wild. There's a paraphrase of this verse that is pretty powerful, too. It says, it says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Do you feel the squeeze? You know what I mean? The squeeze or you're canceled. Either let me squeeze the actual truth out of you, or I'm going to put so much social pressure on you, you shut up. And you never say the truth, right? You never stand for the things of God. Very reminiscent of Matthew 13. You know, if you, if you remember this parable, that's the parable of the four soils. The Johnny, you know, Jesus, Johnny Appleseed, and the seeds everywhere. And you got the path, you got the rocky soil, and then you got the weeds. Do you remember what it says about the weeds? says the seed, so the word of God, the truth of the kingdom, the gospel, the thing that changes everything, the seed falls amongst the thorns, refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. What's interesting is that has always been a tactic of the enemy. I mean, think about that. Before this thing even like explodes in the book of Acts, Jesus is saying, hey, this is how people are going to respond to the kingdom of God. And this is, this is the adversary. You know, some Satan is just going to take it away. Some, it's going to grow up. It's going to suffer a little bit, and then it's going to die. But I'm going to have weeds. There's going to be weeds everywhere trying to choke out because of the worries of this world, the worries of being canceled, the, worried, the worries of how it looks, what my extended family members will say, what my neighbors will think, or the worries of wealth. I'm just going to suck the life out of it, choke it out. And what does that choking out look like? Conformity. It just looks, you're supposed to look like everybody else. So it demands resistance. So if you're going to grow in your faith, so you've got to offer yourself, and then you've got to know right away, I'm going to have to resist some things. And you know how scary that is. There are usually a couple people in your life 
that, that you feel the heat from, you feel the temptation from to conform. And if you think about it, there's only a few battles to actually resist. Um, what were we talking about? I was talking to a guy I meet with, and it was like, resist the devil, and he will flee. He will flee. That's right. Resist the devil, and he will flee. You think these battles sometimes are going to be endless, like the Hundred Years' War. And a lot of times, it is standing up one time and saying, I'm trying to walk for God, with God. I don't think that's true. Uh, let me I'm going to push back on that. Yeah. And oftentimes, you do it once, and the pressure leaves. I don't know if you've... Like, if you follow these... Uh, <laughs> this might be controversial. I don't know. Jordan Peterson keeps talking about the truth is an adventure. I don't know if you guys like Jordan. You don't have to like Jordan. But his, his idea that, man, if you stand up for truth, you don't know what the heck's going to come. And he talks about it like the great adventure of our age is resisting conformity and standing up for truth. Right. And because uh, here, comes, here comes the mob. Our third principle. I think we got it up here. Let's go back to this passage. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, obviously, this is called to know God's word, like comprehensively, in depth, so that the Spirit of God can call upon the Word of God in all these life situations we find about. Because you know what this passage really is about? Like, renew so you can discern, renew your mind. So you can make judgment calls throughout your entire life that, that, are, that are weighed and tested and that are consistent with God, right? Do you guys have any discerning people in your life? Like people you're just like, I have to know what their take is on this issue because I want to walk the straight and narrow. Like we have those. But God wants a church of those, a church that offers themselves, a church that resists, a church that renews its mind so it can discern the real-life situations and choose righteousness versus evil. Uh, consider this for a second. Matthew 4, you're probably familiar with it. Jesus post-baptism. Uh, He's led into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days, and then the tempter comes. And this is, this is going to be heavy. This is hard, right? And he has these three temptations. And what does he do? It is written. Right? Each one of these. It is written. He says, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says... It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then he says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
These are the kind of verses I would imagine you teach little children. And yet, coming face to face with the enemy of God in, in a pretty... Well, it says he's hungry. It says Jesus was hungry. And that's when Satan came. Okay, so he might have been hangry even. Think about it. How many, just, how many decisions do you justify when you're hungry? A lot. Okay. Imagine facing the master manipulator, right? Like the, the, the prince of lying and manipulation. And you pull out the Bible verses that children recite. And yet it was powerful enough to win those moments. It's kind of crazy. That the, the, the Spirit of God working through the, the Word of God could slay these kind of temptations, right? Guarantee there's temptations in your life to, uh, to go, go at it halfway, to give more to other things, to be super anxious about the future or people's opinions. Why don't you try these children's verses? Once you say them out loud, it worked for Jesus. Facing a much, probably, well, I don't know, a stronger enemy, a stronger manipulation than, than you're facing. And yet the Word of God is that powerful that the stuff that you've probably been able to wield since you were 10, 12 years old can fight your battles. It's been changing me. I've been thinking about that for weeks, and it's been changing me because I will just start to say the word out loud when I'm stressed or over a situation or over a person. The last principle I want to give us is this. To renew your mind, you need to become a self-feeder. You guys heard this term before? It's just... It's a really simple term, but it's been like if you've been in discipleship circles, you go, you know what, you, know, you just know if I'm sitting across to somebody and I'm, and I'm the mentor, we got a mentor-mentee relationship, I just know if they will read the Bible by themselves and have the exposure to the Holy Spirit and the God just working through the Scriptures, I know they're going to radically transform. It's like the factor. Uh, because you know what? Then they're not dependent on me as a personal chaplain to, to answer the call. But no, they have started to have this, this kind of like rod of iron, the just backbone of their faith that they go to. And it becomes, it is, it's, it's that simple thing. In fact, like if you use COVID, which was pretty interesting because a lot of people didn't meet, a lot of people who were, uh, pretty serious about faith, kind of like drifted away. So you take something like that, and you know who could handle it? The self-feeders. They could handle that. But a lot of people who had a lot of passion and maybe a lot of history really struggled. And it took years, if any, to like to restore their faith, to renew um, their passion for God. It's that potent. 
when somebody is like that. And think about these metaphors that scripture used, like, like babies that can't handle solid food. I had to feed you, you know, these, I had to feed you baby food. You know what I mean? You should know this. But scripture has the opportunity to nurture your entire soul and make you strong, new your mind. The power to discern, right? The power to, to navigate your own life. And I'll say this, you don't want to be, the only meal you have to be Sunday. And it's kind of like, I was thinking about, this is a weird illustration, but it was like, this is like restaurant food. This is like going out to eat, right? Like you come here, it's been prepared for you. There's some appetizers. You know what's coming. Man, you got to eat every day of the week. You got to feed yourself, nurture yourself so you can be strong in season out. Let's read the, the main verse one more time. It reads, let me find it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. So we have a few minutes. What do you think? Do you want to do it? Yeah, let's, do it. let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so Jonathan was like, hey, it's going to be a little lighter crowd. So maybe we'll do some table questions. So I'll leave these. We'll, we'll probably discuss for, uh, it's, it's probably about a five minutes, just with People at your table, we got the questions right there, okay? What holds you back from offering your whole self to God? Why is conformity to the world's ideas and ways so normal? Why is it hard to become a self-feeder of Scripture? Uh, just going to take a few minutes amongst your own tables, and then Jonathan is going to come up and pray us out.